All right, turn with me please to Acts chapter 11. We've been going verse by verse through the book of Acts for some time. And uh, so we're going to resume where we were last week, Acts chapter 11, beginning with verse number one. And what we'll find is it's a little bit of a recap of the experience that Peter had when he uh, went from Joppa to Caesarea. But uh, let's begin there in Acts chapter 11 with verse one and encourage you if Follow in your uh, copy of God's Word, whether it's on your device or the in your Bible, and uh, let's look at that together. Acts 11, begin with verse 1, says, Now the apostles and brethren who were in Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the Word of God. And when Peter came up to Jerusalem, those of the circumcision contended with him, saying, You went into an uncircumc- uncircumcised into uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter explained it to them in order from the beginning, saying, I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, an object descending like a great sheet let down from heaven by four corners, and it came to me. When I observed it intently and considered, I saw four-footed animals of the earth, wild beasts, creeping things, and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, Not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has at any time entered my mouth. But the voice answered me again from heaven, What God has cleansed you must not call common. Now this was done three times, and all were drawn up again into heaven. At that very moment, three men stood before the house where I was, having been sent to me from Caesarea. Then the Spirit told me to go with them, doubting nothing. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered the man's house, and He told us how he had seen an angel standing in his house who said to him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who will tell you words by which you and all your household will be saved. And as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as upon us at the beginning. Then I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John indeed baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If therefore God gave them the same gift as he gave us when we believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could withstand God? When they heard these things, they became silent and they glorified God, saying, Then God also has granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. When he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord for he was a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith and a great many people were added to the Lord then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul and when he had found him he brought him to Antioch so it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people and the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch and in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch Then one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. 
Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Father, thank you again this morning for the word of God that it's living and powerful. Thank you, God, that you've inspired an account of your truth and you show us through it how to live as followers of Christ. And we pray today that you'll use this word in our life to help us to be grounded and growing and glorifying you, Lord, we give ourselves to you. God, we pray that you help us to set aside impediments and just to be able to internalize the, the word and allow it to become uh, for us the, uh, a, a way that we grow in, in following after you. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, in the scripture text today, uh, we're getting a snapshot of the church. And really, that's what we see in Acts. We have seen. And so here are some ideas I think that we can uh, see as we summarize what the church was like in the first century and their behavior as they uh, were following Jesus. And so just some ideas that we can relate to as we think about how growth was occurring, what it meant to be the church in their day, what it means uh, for us too. Because when we read scripture, I think that's what God is really giving us is uh, continued ideas about how, what do we, how do we live this life? What does it look like to be a follower of Christ? And we can see their values. We can see, for instance, that people were being called into missions, that they uh, weren't just spectators, right? They were engaged in the mission of God in the world. And God, it began with Jesus in the Gospels, and you see that Jesus took people who were fishermen and tax collectors and he said, hey, I'm going to make you fish for men. I'm going to send you into the world with a mission from me. They valued, when we think about what they were like, truth more than they valued comfort. You know, that's not really the Western way of viewing the world, is it? You know, comfort for us is way up here. But for them, they, would, they didn't want to exchange truth just to be comfortable. They were flexible and embracing that. You know, I've been on a lot of mission trips in my life, all over North America, many places in the world. One of the first things people will tell you when you, when you leave home is be flexible. Conditions are going to change. You're going to need, need to adjust. Your posture is going to need to be such that if something happens that you don't expect, you adjust to it. It, it uh, very well may be a God thing. So flexibility, and it's still important for us as a congregation to be able to say, we're going to adjust to God. We're going to keep giving ourselves to God. And what God shows us, we're going we're to make adjustments to him in it. And so that was what they were doing, thoughtful adjustments at times, thinking uh, people who were able to uh, work when the Spirit led to follow the Holy Spirit's leadership. And they... We're integrating uncomfortable truth. When we look at this passage, last week we saw Peter's being challenged because kosher, uh, his kosher diet, he has this vision of animals being lowered in a sheet. And as it was lowered, the voice comes to him and says, rise, kill, and eat. And he says, but I've been a, um, I've been a kosher Jew. You know, since I was a child, I've followed the, these commands. And God says to him, listen, what... The Holy Spirit is called, what God's called clean or, or com, uh, uncommon, you don't call it common. 
And so he is having to learn within himself that there are changes and innovations that God has brought about in his mission to reach everyone. And so Peter is making those adjustments, and one of the things that he learns is, like, not everybody is happy about it. Not everybody is going to be happy when we uh, commit to obey uh, obey God. It would be great if everybody cheered us on, but that's not always the way it was, it is or the way it was. And so innovation is occurring, and this innovation has always been in the heart of God for the nations, that God sees people and says, that salvation is for everyone. And so Peter is part of what God is doing to change the uh, first century world and to lay a foundation for us to understand him and his purposes to rescue and redeem. God was doing something new that was really a continuation of ancient and you know, eternal ways, actually, ancient and eternal. And so they had to think, if you've been taught your religious scruples need to follow a certain order, and then all of a sudden you're being told, hey, that order no longer applies. It requires thoughtfulness and adjustment. And so they were listening to God. They were obeying God. Each step of what they did, we said last week when you saw Peter, Peter is on the roof in prayer. And also at the same time, Cornelius is in Caesarea and he's doing the same thing. He's engaged in prayer. And God is working and leading people through their their prayerful engagement. They valued following above fighting. You know, I've been in church life all, all my adult life, basically. And I can tell you that's not always the rule for how people are in congregational life. So it's not that they didn't fight. It's not that they weren't ever at uh, odds with one another, but they uh, eventually uh, value following more than fighting. They valued sending more than sitting. So complacency was always being challenged, and they were always being moved out into God's mission. And if a church is growing, we have to grow along with it. So that's always going to be true about you and I. God's purpose for every human being is that we mature, that we grow, that we develop in in our spiritual understanding and in our ways. And so we'll always have to adjust to be obedient to Christ and his mission. That's what we see in the passage that we've been reading for the last several weeks that it's always going to require you and me to make adjustments to God, who is eternal and unchanging. So our ways often will find, well, I'm not aligned with God, and to be in alignment with God in obedience is everything for those of us who are following Christ. And so they have to bring new energy, new perspective, to the good problems they're experiencing. You know, we'll always have problems. I like good problems when it comes to congregational life. You know, the congrega- uh, kind of problems that go along with, okay, well, we, we need more people to staff this ministry, those kinds of problems. But they're, they're always having to uh, understand and hear from God and bring new energy and perspective. And over and over again, the pattern that you see is that they, they had to decide whether to fight against God or to cooperate with God. 
That's what you see, and we'll see it in the uh, text as we keep going through it. They had to see that, and so do we. So there was a decision as to whether they would uh, follow God in his purposes or whether they would be slaves to their preferences. So in the passage, those are the kinds of uh, conflicts that you see. Those are the kind of challenges that we see. And so we'll see in the uh, passage today some aspects or ideas about what growing churches will encounter. This was a growing church. So what happened? What did they encounter? Well, we see first they faced challenges and obstructions. It was just a part of the journey that they were on with God. And the first aspect of that is that there's contention. Peter does nothing more than obey God, but he finds himself in conflict as a result of it. As the word gets back to the believers and leaders in Jerusalem, because it says both the leaders, the apostles, and the brethren, when they heard that Peter had gone into the home of a non-Jew, a Gentile, it caused conflict, it caused consternation in these people. And so... That the word gets back and they confront Peter, right? That's what you see immediately in the passage in verse 3. My, my version, the New King James Version that I read from, has an exclamation point at the end of verse 3. That means what? It was emotional for them, right? It was emotional. We heard that you went in and had, and, and went in and had fellowship with Gentiles, with non-Jews. And it, it causes emotional uh, exchange between Peter and, and these brothers. These are brothers. These are also followers of Jesus. And we said this is like a decade maybe into this movement, about 10 years in or maybe a little longer in this uh, new Christian movement where they're trying to f- understand, okay, well, what does it really mean to be a follower of Jesus? We've been raised in Judaism We've had these concepts all our life. Now we know that there is a resurrected Christ. Christ came. He died. He, he's been raised. But what does this mean? What, how do we uh, relate to uh, the, what it means to be the church now, this congregation, outside of that old path that's been superseded? And so some who uh, heard this didn't know how to receive the word of the Spirit's activity with the right heart attitude. It affected them. And so they confront Peter about it. And they weren't good with spiritual nuance. And and I think part of growing up is learning how to think about complicated, nuanced things without it blowing us out of the water. You know, part of what it means to mature is to be able to say, let me think on that. Let me reflect. Let me give myself to that without being reactionary. Adapting to essential change is a characteristic of a healthy church. You know, change is different than stasis. Stasis, static, often is the same thing as saying creeping death when it comes to what a congregation is experiencing. And so sometimes adjusting, to essential change, which is what they were having to do, is just a mark of what it means to listen to God and to engage with God. So Peter was initially treated with suspicion. 
You know, they're like, what's going on here? What are you, what are you doing going into these, uh, uh, common, unclean people? Cause that's what the story is really about with the sheep and the animals, right? It's not about eating only or even primarily. It's about human beings. That's what the story's about is God has given them, gives him this ecstatic vision. And it is an illustration. And God is saying through that illustration, I want you to look at people and understand people the way I see them, with the value that I assign to them. Not the value that you assign to them, which is niche and uh, small-minded and prejudice. That was all of the stuff that they were dealing with. And so God says, I want you to learn to see people not food, although we're all glad, you know, that we've moved into the pork stage of, like, the religious experience, right? Ham, biscuits at breakfast and bacon, all that stuff. We like that, but that's not what the story is about. The story is about people. And God's saying, I see every single human being as having been, uh, as having come about through Adam and Eve, through one set of parents, as we saw before in Acts 17, uh, verse 26. So they had to adapt, and uh, Peter's treated with suspicion, but he, he listened to God and obeyed the Holy Spirit. That's what he did. And serving God sometimes subjects people to criticism. So it's part of the deal. I remember seeing this quote by Albert Hubbard, And it's comforting to me. It says, to avoid criticism, say nothing, do nothing, be nothing. In other words, if you're going to be anything, if you're going to do anything, welcome to the reality that it is an invitation to be criticized. And so sometimes leading, being a spiritual leader, is going to subject people to criticism. Stuart Briscoe said... uh, A pastor needs the heart of a child, the mind of a scholar, and the height of a rhinoceros. And I can tell you, if 30 years of ministry, that's exactly right. We will disappoint people sometimes in our efforts to please God. Peter, in this story, is doing nothing more than obeying God, and yet he finds what? People are disappointed in him. So it's kind of, uh, there's a lesson there. So the, the first part of this, contention. But also, in the passage, the way it flows, clarification. Peter just basically recaps what's happened. Here's what, what happened. I was praying, this guy's praying, and it ends up that God tells me that he's going to send messengers and to go with them. And he has the vision of the animals Uh, being lowered, and at the same time in Caesarea, Cornelius is told, send for Peter. He's staying at the home of Simon Tanner and bring him back, and he's going to tell you how to know Jesus, how to be more than just a moral man, a praying man, but how to be a saved man, how to be a man in whom the Spirit of God lives through Jesus. And so his ears are open, and and God is leading. That's a good combination of stuff, right? When your ears are open and God is leading, that's where that's our sweet spot. That's where we want to be. He was told not to discriminate in verse 12. 
The scripture says, then the spirit told me, go with them doubting nothing. And when you look at the doubting nothing phrase, it means without discriminating, without prejudging, without deciding in advance, you're listening to the Holy Spirit. Don't go by appearances, Peter is told, but listen to God. Don't let your preconceptions keep you from what God is clearly saying. Peter described the work of the Spirit. He didn't initiate this. God initiated this, and it was his purpose. And and in fact, they all knew it was his purpose. And, And we'll see how in a moment. But they knew this already, that God's purpose was for the nations to receive the good news. So he was God's agent and God's instrument, and he established that last week we said this was the Gentile Pentecost. That's what this is. On Pentecost in Jerusalem, you remember they assembled in the upper room. Jesus had said, Terry, wait in prayer. And as they waited in prayer, the Bible says that they uh, heard a sound as a mighty rushing wind and saw tongues of fire that set on each of them. And then they spoke in uh, tongues. And then they went out and they preached to the people. And as they preached, they each heard the uh, word of God being proclaimed to them in their own language. And the Bible basically says, here's what's going on. The Gentiles are having their own Pentecost. And God is affirming through their Pentecost that salvation has come to them. And you remember Peter says, on the basis of what we're observing, why shouldn't these people be baptized? And they baptized those believers with water as a a symbol of their forgiveness and their understanding of the good news that Peter, right in the middle of preaching the gospel, the spirit falls. And, and then Peter calls for these believers to be baptized because he knows that God is growing the church and it can't be denied. So it's interesting that what God uh, has done in Jerusalem is repeated and then Peter has to defend himself from two groups we, we see. The first is the Jewish council and the high priest. Do you remember? If you go back in the book of Acts, they're detained and brought before the council and also the high priest. And Peter, you remember his argument before them? Whether it's better to obey you or God, you decide. But we can't help but say what we've seen. Okay, fast forward. He has to make a defense now between traditional Jewish Christians who are on the verge of resisting the Holy Spirit. And his argument is exactly the same. He says, you decide whether it's better to obey God than men. But he says, listen, we're going to obey God. That's his argument. We're obeying God. And then in the first part of this passage, we get confirmation. Because... Thankfully, in verse 18, you see that they, when they heard these things, they became silent, they glorified God, and then they said, then apparently God has also granted to the Gentiles repentance to life. So in in the passage we see, okay, we would assume uh, when the church is growing, everything's going to be perfect and harmonious, but no, actually, when the first century church began to grow, It introduced, at times, conflict and difficulty. 
and they had to work through it as brothers. But also, growing churches, as we see in the passage, are committed to evangelism, missions, discipleship. Evangelism, missions, and discipleship. And the passage shows us that some believers, they all are scattered as you follow Acts, in the book of Acts, in the beginning, there's persecution. Stephen becomes the first martyr. The Bible says that Stephen preached the gospel, used the Old Testament, and took those messianic passages, proclaimed them, applied them to Jesus, and then while he is preaching the scripture, he is stoned to death in Jerusalem. So Stephen, his martyrdom, the flames of persecution grow. Paul, Saul of Tarsus, was the ringleader in that. In between, he's converted. But in the meantime, this dispersion of Christians happens, and they're scattered, and they, they move north up the Mediterranean. And as they move northward, they proclaim Christ, but only to Jewish people at first. But also, eventually, some of them proclaim the gospel to others. But that's the first thing we see is that some placed unnecessary limits on the gospel. This is a barrier that we see part of Acts is committed to chipping away at, this barrier, that they have a, a, a limit. The gospel is only going to go to our nation at first. These diaspora Christians, this, the pilgrims of the dispersion is how Peter describes them in his epistle. Because of persecution, scattered. How do they go? What's the attitude they take with them? They're cautious. You would be too, right? If you had to pack up your belongings from where you live, or I had to today, if I'm like, okay, well, this intense violent pressure is causing me to grab what things I can and leave home, that's their, their experience, the next place I went... I'm sure I would feel suspicion, caution. That's, that's the attitude that the, some of these people took with them. They weren't taking risk. Unfortunately, they also became tribal and ingrown, sectarian, insular is the word, insular. So they're limiting the gospel. The gospel is only going out to some people but not to everybody. They weren't taking risks. The last thing Jesus said to his disciples before he ascended into heaven in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 was, you will be witnesses to me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So my assumption is that they knew that, right? All these believers, there were only 120 of them to start with, Those were the people that gathered to pray in the upper room. They knew that God had already told them you need to take risk and take the gospel to people. So you see that there's this first unnecessary limit. Second, you see unbridled sharing occurring. And this is when the church grows. The church grows when there's unbridled sharing. When evangelism is a part of the mission of the church, when the congregation takes seriously the idea that the gospel needs to be proclaimed to every single human being that we encounter. 
Evangelism is an aspect of the Great Commission. When we stop evangelizing, eventually there's nobody to disciple. That's the way it works. It used to be there was a a long season in North American churches where the pattern looked like we were doing a really poor job of discipling people. We were doing a really good job of evangelizing people, and churches were full. We were reaching people. We were proclaiming Christ. I've shared before, like, the churches I belonged to in the past would put you through, like, a 12-week training course where you memorized Scripture and you learned... um, diagnostic questions, and like when I was just a little baby Christian, they put us in cars and drove us to people's house and shoved us in their living rooms. And like I said, that was when nobody had Nest cameras and stuff like that. Now when you ring people's doorbells, they're like, what is that? What's that noise? And they hide. But back then, they would put you in cars and take you to people's homes and put you in the living room, sharing your testimony to people. And lots of people were getting baptized in churches. But it felt like we did a really poor job of discipling people back in those days. We didn't take them deep. And not as many people were embracing and learning spiritual truth. Now it feels like to me that we've overcorrected in in the opposite direction so that the experience that people have now is that we disciple pretty well, but the pendulum has swung so far over here that it's all discipleship and no evangelism. And some of that is because of the things I said. The culture around us is changing. People are reluctant to really embrace Christianity. We live at a time where everybody is... Still a little insular. It's like we hide away. We're isolated. We moved as churches beyond the programming uh, methods that we used to use. We don't do those program things anymore, but we haven't figured out how to share the gospel either. And so this mission, this idea that I just take my story, my testimony, and I share it with some other person, and I help them hear about who Jesus is, this is still God's mandate for the church. And so we have to figure it out. Sometimes it, it looks like nothing more than we, pre, we print these little slick, glossy cards, you know, and, we, and they're all over, they're all over our foyer out there, the connect area, the hub or whatever we call it. These little cards, you can take them with you and give them to somebody and just say, hey, would you come to church? I, I do that at Chick-fil-A a lot, Cody. I give away invitations not everybody that works at chick-fil-a is a christian right i mean you work with these people all the time right but i mean everywhere we go it is a way that we can connect people and invite people and part of what they did was that too if you you remember what did peter do when uh andrew he said to his brother peter what come and see come and see and and so the the task of evangelism is still very much a part of what God has as our agenda as his followers. And if we don't evangelize soon, down the way there's nobody to disciple. There's nobody to pour into because we're not sharing the good news of, of Christ. And so they shared the good news 
with everyone. Look at what it says in verse 21. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and the great, uh, great number believed and turned to the Lord. They didn't put limits on sharing, and it says the hand of the Lord was with them. That's uh, I, I've had that experience in church before where the hand of the Lord was clearly with, with the church. And the church was really growing because God was given the growth and God was given the increase. He's still God. He's still able. And so they, unbridled sharing was occurring. Then you see, too, that the church was undergirded by discipleship. So discipleship matters, and it mattered to them. Once they started seeing all these people coming to Christ, they were like, these people need to grow in their understanding of what it means to follow Christ. So the Jerusalem church does uh, something brilliant. They send Barnabas. They're like, and I think part of their intent is like, they're suspicious, but they, uh, uh, unfortunately for them, sent the wrong guy or the right guy. You know, they send Barnabas, and Barnabas' heart is perfect for this assignment. And that's what I thought when I was reading this. Barnabas, and he, he sends for Saul, and they become the teaching team for the church at Antioch. And the church at Antioch becomes the mission-sending church along the Mediterranean seaboard so that the gospel ends up going up into Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. And the, and the gospel ends up going to Rome. And the gospel ends up spreading throughout the civilized world from Antioch. It's the place that becomes the mission center in the first century world. And so it, the thing I notice is it only takes a few genuinely faithful people to make a ton of difference. People who are selfless and who pray and pour into others. It only takes a few people like that. And that's what discipleship starts to look like that others embrace truth and begin to live, live it out. Encouragers who in their love for Jesus bring the spiritual temperature up so God is glorified. Barnabas could have gone down there and quenched the spirit. He could have. He could have gotten there and, and been like, hey, 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 knock it off. You know, this isn't what you're supposed to be doing. But instead, he really understood what the spirit was doing and saying. And he goes in and he fans the flames even higher and brighter. So there are two possible ways that groups were responding to the work of the Spirit among these non-Jews in the first century where the Gentile mission was occurring. One group hardened into a persecuting horde called Judaizers. There were two ways that people were responding in the first century. One hardened into a persecuting horde. So that as we go forward in Acts, you see Paul goes to Lystra and Derby and these uh, you know, provinces and cities and he preaches the gospel and they follow him. These are professing followers of Jesus, by the way, that follow him and stir up conflict against the gospel and the idea that the good news is for everybody. So that's one way. The second way is embodied in Barnabas where the scripture says that they rejoiced to see what the great, he rejoiced to see what the grace of God had done and with hearty determination he kept encouraging all of them to remain faithful to the Lord. Think about the contrast in those two positions and those two ways of responding to what God's doing. You could 
harden or you could encourage the movement and Barnabas encouraged the movement and poured into people. I love his bio in verse 24. Look at what it says about him. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. Isn't that a great bio? How do you want to be remembered in the end? What do you think people will say about you and I when everything is over with? What's our epitaph? What are people going to say about us when it's all over with? Are they going to say the same thing? Hey, this person was on fire for God, loved God, loved people, was pouring into other human beings, was willing to be inconvenienced so that he could make a difference or she could make a difference in the lives of other humans. Barnabas goes and finds Saul in Tarsus and he teamed with him to be even more productive in the training of these believers. You get two people who, when you look at them, probably couldn't be less alike. Type A, driven dude, who like task-oriented Barnabas, who sees people and his, his name is the son of encouragement. And at first, these, this is the team that God sends to that church in Antioch. And they disciple. That means they were causing these people to become more and more like Christ. And we all need training and deepening, and it's why we will say, why do you, every Sunday Jonathan stands up here and he makes an announcement about small group Bible study because everybody needs to be connected to small group Bible study. Not just, you know, so we can say, hey, everybody's in, but because this is a one-sided deal. You know, for the most part, I like amens. I'm glad when people amen. But this is mostly a one-sided deal. And that's not what small group ministry is like. It is an exchange. It has the opportunity to be where we're learning people more than you're going to learn uh, other people in like 10 minutes in the traffic that happens when church lets out today. It's a commitment that you make because it's healthy and good for you. And so I encourage you to think about that. Figure out a way to get connected so discipleship becomes intentional and, and deliberate, it's uh, what we see was occurring there, that they were investing in people to help them. And what is it? Look at the, the scripture here in verse 26, what it says. And uh, when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch, so that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch, it says. So they taught and taught and taught until these people started behaving like Jesus. That's what the scriptures say. They called them Christians, little Christs, people who look like Jesus because they were investing and investing so that people would start to look more and more like Jesus because to be evangelists and missionaries and do, do this work of, the, of discipleship that's what's needed. It's credibility and character that is part of our experience. And we see two grow, growing churches are led by the Spirit and are structured. Verse 27 says, In those days prophets came from Jerusalem to, to Antioch. Now that's an unusual idea for us. Prophecy is a, a unique idea. 
It conveys seeing into future events, especially contextually here, because what does he do? He predicts a famine of Abagus, predicts a famine that's going to occur in the future. We should note that this is not a vague, uh, some vague speculation, right? It is a specific event that he predicts, and it happened. So vague prophecies or failed prophecies in, in the Bible in the Old Testament, what did they do to false prophets? Do you remember? They killed them, right? So when we think about prophecy, uh, it, of course we don't believe in killing false prophets now, but <laughs> somebody said, mm. <laughs> but but in the uh, in, in the scripture, this was a specific event that was prophesied and then historically you can go back and look and see that it happened in Judea and also when you read forward in Acts so he predicts a catastrophic famine which occurs under the reign of Claudius the emperor and so Luke verifies specific details because his purpose to show that these were actual events and that our faith is not founded on myth this is the way it puts it elsewhere in scripture for we were not making up clever stories when we told you about the powerful coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. We saw his majestic splendor with our own eyes. So there's a sense here of uh, history, and that's exactly what Luke tells you in the very beginning. In chapter 1 in the book of Acts, he says uh, that I set in order these events that occurred historically. So there's a sense here also that churches are connected and interrelated and not merely a collection of isolated independent local churches. You see that. There's traffic and uh, commerce between the congregation in Jerusalem and the congregation in Antioch and then other places when the scripture begins to grow and spread. They cooperated, made plans to bless the world, expand the kingdom collaboratively collaboratively with other congregations. They partnered for greater effectiveness. Not only uh, do we see they're striving for unity in their fellowship, but they are striving for unity and working out of the wider understanding of the church, the body of Christ, what we would call the universal church. Like Cody won't be here next week. Why? Because they're going to disciple students for the weekend with a number of other local churches. The uh, opportunity to go worship at One Savior on Good Friday is a way that we understand that we're not a single congregation, our own thing, not connected to others, but there is a way that we're connected to other congregations for worship and effectiveness. And so it's informal. Those are informal uh, connections, but they matter. They're a statement. It's why I would encourage you to go and worship on those days, as uh, the Good Friday service especially, and, and to encourage uh, connecting with others who are like-minded for worship. As the church grew, we see it had form, that was helpful. It had elders and structure. You see in the scripture that says that uh, in verse number uh, 30, then the disciples each according to his ability determined sin relief. And they did it by the 
sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So as the church was growing, it had elders and it had structure. And as I've uh, said before several times, people will say, I don't like organized religion, but it's better than disorganized religion. I can tell you that. So they had structure and they had order. And organization gives people handles and pathways and allows for moving forward predictably. You don't have to constantly reinvent the wheel. There is an orderliness that Scripture commends as helpful. The Bible says in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14, For God is not a God of disorder, but of peace, as in all the meetings of God's holy people. So in other words, they affected order as an aspect of ministry. They said this is important because we don't want confusion to hold reign. We want this to make sense and be reproducible because they were starting churches. They were investing in uh, the gospel in places where the scripture once people heard it and responded to Jesus and gave their lives to him and were baptized, they were establishing new work. And it had a pattern that you can see in the scripture. So in the the passage we see Christ has come and God has sent us into the world as emissaries of this reality. That's you and me. We're emissaries of of this reality. He calls us witnesses and ambassadors. There's no dark place that he hasn't purposed the light of the gospel to brighten and transform. There's no human being that he's excluded, we see, from reading this passage. He so loved the world that he gave Jesus for us. His will for us will, uh, and for our life always begins there with salvation, with surrender to Jesus, to recognizing that our sinfulness has separated us from God and that God in his kindness sent the answer, the Messiah, Jesus. And he took upon himself our punishment and He died in our place so that we could experience forgiveness and he was raised from the dead, the Bible says, to demonstrate powerfully that justification occurred, that the the, uh, possibility of salvation was present for those that respond to his offer of salvation. Churches flourish when we move with God. That's what they were doing. Like the Israelites in the wilderness, we've been reading uh, in the Old Testament in our Bible time, Bible reading time, Leviticus and Numbers and in the tabernacle. Every day the Bible says that there was a pillar, a column of cloud by day, a column of fire by night, and sometimes it stayed for a day. But then sometimes it stayed for weeks, but God would, when the uh, tabernacle, when the pillar of fire moved or cloud moved, God said it's time to go and they went. And that's what we're to be like. We're to be people who listen and respond and go when God says go and act on the impulse of his will. We're committed to rejoicing with gladness as we see Christ being formed in others. We grow in Christ so that the church can grow too. Our stuckness shouldn't be an inhibiting, limiting factor like we saw with segments of the Christian movement in the first century. Sometimes they were just stuck, and it was unhelpful. We received the word of God to be rooted and fruitful. They were receiving the word of God. We take risks. We aren't ruled by caution and suspicion. We're open and gracious and useful. This is what maturing discipleship 
looks like according to Acts. And God uses us to write his story. God's story in the world. Generation after generation, God says, my intent is to use you. To use you. To communicate truth. To live in such a way that people understand that the good news has impact when it's received in when Christ is received into hearts. I want to pray for us. We're going to conclude our service today with a song of invitation, and I'll be happy to pray with you during this time as God is uh, leading. There's a, a commitment that you would like to make. We encourage that as well. But Let's go to him in prayer. God, thank you for your faithfulness and inspiring your word to us, the truth you've given so that we know how to live and respond to you. And thank you for the illustrations that we see of people who were constantly adjusting their lives to you in obedience, that listened and that heard you. And God, thank you for your faithfulness to lead. Thank you that you love and forgive God, thank you that you you are great and worthy to be worshipped. And we pray, Father, that you'll use us, use our lives as missionaries, use our lives as uh, those who evangelize and proclaim truth and live truth. God, we need you so much, and we pray that you'll help us now as we have this time where we just open up ourselves to you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.